1: very special uh, interviewee. We have Andrew Yang. Uh, Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself and why you're here and and what you're uh, what you're trying to do? Yes,
2: I'm thrilled to be here. I was just saying that I consider my campaign to be gathering the people of reason. <laughs> so I'm running for president in 2020 as a Democrat. Uh, I've been campaigning for uh, most of this past year.
3: Alaykum,
0: everyone.
3: What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit. I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10. We did not know each other and we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every
0: politician who is taking donations from the NRA, Shame on I believe them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believe them. Children being separated from their parents
3: So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it?
2: Welcome to Public Access America.
0: Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. God bless us.
1: Oh, wow. So you, you really started in early on in the campaign season. Because everyone's hearing, you know, with Elizabeth Warren throwing her hat in the ring, everyone's thinking, oh, this 2020 campaign season's up again. But you are you are really ahead of the game there, weren't you?
2: Well, the the fact is that I'm something of an unknown uh, candidate to most people, and so I needed some time to introduce myself. Uh, but the campaign's been gathering tremendous steam. CNN included me in its latest poll of people in Iowa. Uh, I was tied with Kirsten Gillibrand and Eric Holder uh, in that poll, uh, raised about $700,000 from people around the country. Uh, and and the, the trajectory is straight up. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad I declared early.
1: Uh, do you want to t- uh, talk a little bit more about the uh, the key tenets, the foundations of your campaign, and, and why your voice is different from other uh, Democratic candidates out there?
2: Yeah, I would love to. So a little bit about my background. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Before declaring for president, I started an organization called Venture for America that I've run since 2011. Or I did run, since so I stepped down to run for president. And Venture for America... It's an entrepreneurship fellowship organization with a focus on cities around the country uh, that could use a boost. Um, So those cities are Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans, cities like that. And uh, I've been based on the east and west coast for most of my career. So I had never been to the Midwest and the south to that degree. Uh, And I realized that the reason why Donald Trump won in 2016 was that we've automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, all the swing states he needed to win, and that my friends in Silicon Valley know that we're about to do the same thing to millions of American workers in retail, call centers, truck driving, fast food restaurants, and on and on. And when I went to senior political leaders and said, guys, the reason why Donald Trump won is that we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the world, uh, what are we gonna do about that? Unfortunately, democratic leaders had very little to say. Um, that their talking points were around things like, we have to educate and retrain Americans for the jobs of the future. And then when I said, look, the, the independent studies on that show that our federally funded retraining programs are abysmally ineffective. Uh, they're effective at zero to 15% rates and only 10% of American workers qualify for retraining anyway, um, then politicians really had nothing to say. And and so I became, frankly, incredibly depressed about the prospects of our country. If the third inning of this transformation would lead to Donald Trump becoming president, that we need to evolve and advance our society and our economy as quickly as possible. So, so those are the key ideas to the campaign, our policies that help us get through the greatest economic transformation
1: of our time. Uh, So you really did a lot of uh, economic analysis before forming or as part of forming your your policymaking. And so one of the things that we do as an organization is we, we really push for uh, evidence-based policymaking, you know, science and data and nonpartisan, robust evidence that is that is brought forth into, into policymaking proper. And how did, uh, you mentioned that you talked about some data collection. So how did this, these kind of values of evidence-based policymaking influence in, and and uh, build into your campaign for president?
2: I feel like my entire platform is evidence-based policy. <laughs> it's like, because to me, there's very little else you would base policy on, um, and my background you might appreciate this. My parents met in graduate school at Berkeley. My father is a physicist with 69 U.S. patents. My my mother got her master's in math and statistics. My brother's a psychology professor. Uh, and so, to me, science and evidence and facts are the only thing that I, I traffic in. And when when I talk to people about, uh, again, the reasons why Trump won, the media will throw out reasons like russia and racism and facebook and the fbi all of which might have played some marginal role but the key drivers are the fact that we've decimated middle-class jobs in so many communities around the country uh and unfortunately our media is getting caught up in these cultural signifiers uh, more than they are the facts on the ground um so i could not agree more with your community's focus and the fact that policy should be based on science and reason and evidence. Yeah.
1: That's that's a really valid point, because so, uh, fun fact, I saw that you you grew up in, you said it was upstate New York in your, in your bio on your website. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and now I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So those are two communities that have really been harrowed by, or, or at least some of the greater areas around those cities, have really been hit hard by, um, you know, the, the, there's been booms in economics in like big cities, the healthcare boom that has really helped out both of those cities. But there have been tens of thousands of Americans in those locations that really have not seen or have kind of been left kind of by the wayside as prosperity happens in these particular pockets around the country. And those are the people that very strongly voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016, because it doesn't matter whether or not they liked him as a person, they saw him as the, the opportunity for economic prosperity. And people are not willing to look at the data and say, that is a key component of why Trump won. It's oh Russia, oh, X, Y, and Z. Like you said, they must have helped. But there's, there's much more fundamental questions at play, like, am I going to have a job in the future? So you have uh, universal basic income as one of the key foundational tenets of your, of your platform. Can you talk a little bit more about how you formed an advocacy for that policy or why that became such a cornerstone of your work?
2: Sure. So I was looking through the numbers, and if you want to dig through some of my research, I wrote a book on this subject called The War on Normal People. It's about the future of work and how, unfortunately, bleak it projects to be. And so uh, the five most common jobs in the American economy by category are administrative, uh, administrative and clerical work, sales and retail, food service and food preparation, truck driving and transportation and manufacturing. Those five job categories comprise about 50% of all American jobs. They make, on average, 14 to $15 an hour. Only 32% of Americans graduate from college. So the average American worker is a high school graduate or someone who has maybe one year of college in a community college environment. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at those job categories, you see that each of them is going to get displaced very quickly. And, is, and many of them are in the midst of displacement right now. Administrative and clerical work includes 2.5 million call center workers, Who make $14 an hour and we know that artificial intelligence will quickly be able to do that work. 30 percent of American malls are going to close in the next four years due to Amazon soaking up another 20 billion dollars of e-commerce every year. And the one that scares me and scares really any objective observer is truck driving which is the most common job in 29 states. There are three and a half million truckers 90 percent male average age 49 average education high school or one year of college. And so when you dig into what's going to happen to these workers then you realize that we need very very big policies to help people transition meaningfully to better opportunities perhaps some degree of retraining if that's effective um, but also relocating to places where the economy might be more robust and so when I was looking at the policies that made the most sense I kept coming back to universal basic income which had been championed by many people over the years. Uh, but one of the guys that championed it most recently that really impacted me was a guy named Andy Stern, who used to run the biggest labor union in the country, the SEIU. And when I, when the most prominent labor leader of his generation, who's been arguing for labor for decades, says the future of labor is no labor, and we need to move towards universal basic income, um, then I said, okay, it's not just tech guys hyperventilating. Um, it's actually people who've been fighting for workers too. Uh, and so the universal basic income, as you suggested, is the cornerstone uh,
1: of my platform. And I, I'd be very happy to go into it, though I've been talking for a little while. <laughs> no, that, this this whole interview is to, to to give you a platform to talk about you know, what you guys are doing. So uh, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because a lot of people, as you, you you've kind of touched on this, a lot of the rhetoric for most of the last several elections has been jobs, jobs, jobs. It's the economy, all this stuff. like, And everyone's talking about, you know, how am I going to get more jobs for Americans every time there's a, a a monthly jobs report that comes out? Donald Trump is tweeting about it. It's a really central component. And, you know, a lot of people aren't really seeing the writing on the wall that there's, there's going to be a lot of automation, there's going to be a lot of change. And so instead of, you know, pushing for you know, kind of resisting, the, the, resisting the, the trend that is going to happen regardless, you're, you're kind of embracing that in a way, aren't you? And saying, here's a policy that can help us move forward. Have you had any backlash uh, from uh, supporting universal basic income uh, as opposed to other candidates on the campaign trail or just in general? And if so, what are some of the arguments that people have presented against what you've been uh, promoting?
2: Well, you know, the, the thing that concerns me the most is, like, there are a lot of people, I think, who are aligned with um, workers' interests but there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, you know. Like I, I talked to 100 truckers uh, last month. When I talked to truckers last year, they said there's no way a robot can do my job. And then this year, they're saying we have to make it illegal for a robot to do my job. So they've changed their tune. <laughs> now that now they think it's possible, they just need to make it illegal. But you can't go around trying to trying to uh, mandate work rules. Uh, Because certain industries that aren't protected, like retail, would be decimated very quickly. And then you'd have all of these professions, including very high order professions like lawyers and accountants and pharmacists, arguing that it's necessary for humans to do certain work. Uh, So unfortunately, like all of the other worker preservation policies that people are looking at, to me... Are going to fall short of the mark like we you know the and and then you wind up uh moving towards something like government guaranteed employment which in my view would be really really disastrous in practice um you know like if people get frustrated with the government um handling uh various functions and like imagine if we all, <laughs> if, we all if, you're, if,
1: you're angry, if you're angry about oh i don't want the government in my health care i don't want the government in my taxes and everything like now now you're going to turn to the government and say oh i need to have a job like it's 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 not only counterintuitive but it's also problematic because you know there's going to be extra issues there so is that like a major issue like people say oh well when these jobs when these jobs go the government will just make them stay is that kind of the counter argument
2: that is one of the major counter arguments among Democrats. Um, it's that this is quickly becoming a much more central issue. Um, and the other major response is government guaranteed employment, which again, I think would be a total disaster in practice. Um, so when, when you ask what the biggest pushback is or backlash to something like the freedom dividend, which is what I've rebranded universal basic income because it tests much better with, uh, more Americans with the word freedom in it.
1: Yeah. Freedom that, that, that gets Americans attention, right? (laughs) Sorry, go on.
2: No, and then I say, look, we're we're the owners and shareholders of the richest country in the history of the world. We can easily afford a $1,000 dividend per adult. Martin Luther King was for it. Milton Friedman was for it. It passed the House of Representatives twice under Richard Nixon in 1971. One state has had a dividend for 36 years where it's wildly popular under uh, multiple Republican governors, and that state is Alaska, which funds it with oil money. And the oil of the 21st century is... Data and technology and artificial intelligence and and self-driving cars and trucks, uh, and so the backlash I get um, tends to center around a few things. One, how can we afford it? And then after you say we can afford it, then they say, okay, well, you know, you've done the math and I haven't. Um, uh, the the second uh, is people need to work, and and this is probably the biggest thing that people don't understand is that um, this is a very pro-work policy. It would create several million jobs. It would grow the consumer economy by twelve percent. Um, you know, and and it inverts the traditional incentives or disincentives of welfare programs, where if you do better, you get less money. Um, Whereas if you're getting a dividend in this form, you get to keep it all. And then if you do better, you keep that too. Um, So that's probably the single biggest objection people have is like, oh, well, people need to work. Um, And and there's this misconception that if someone were to get $1,000 a month, they would just up and quit their job, which obviously doesn't make any sense. Um, since if you're scraping by making $24,000 as a server at a restaurant, and then you start getting paid a thousand dollars a month because Andrew Yang's president in 2021, um, if you quit your job, then you just took a 50% pay cut and you're having trouble making ends meet right now. Whereas if you keep your job, maybe you cut back on one shift, then you're making $34,000 and you might be able to Save a, a, a little bit, take your kid out once a week, start saving for college, start saving for uh, for, like a, a larger purchase, and, and get your head up. There's no reason that everyone would quit their job on $1,000 a month since that's below the poverty line. Yeah,
1: it's, designed, and, um, designed to, it's designed to incentivize prosperity. You, know, you talk about, especially my generation, now, full disclosure, I'm 23 years old. So you know we have you know, my generation is coming out of college with copious amounts of debt is expected to have two to three years of work experience and starting with job you know have a master's degree expected to pay 30000 $30, dollars in many in many fields, and you know we're not going to stop working because we get a slight raise because that raise is not nearly enough to cover of our, <laughs> our rest of our bills right so you you talk about these prosperity the 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 incentivizing of you know you know not just working. But this ties into other social uh, social issues too, because you talk about the, the the waitress who has to work extra shifts in order to feed her child. Now she has that money. Now she can maybe get spend more time with her with her child. And now that's an evidence based policy where you know having good parent you know parent child connection time is vital for the development of the kid of the kid and develop uh, developing in their education and everything. So it's not just oh this benefits because it gives money. It touches on a lot of other social issues within the United States.
2: Oh yeah, I'm so glad you said that, because so here's one of the huge pieces of evidence that we've been ignoring for decades. And when when someone brought this to my attention, like it it really made me want to like scream from the rooftops. So we go to our schools and teachers uh, and educators and say, hey, like like educate our children and like you know overcome uh, decades of uh, social inequities. Uh, and just like work miracles. And then the data says that between 70 to 80 percent of kids' school performance is based on non-school factors like parental time, parental income, parental education, stress levels in the home type of neighborhood you're in. Like those are the things and teachers know this, educators know that all of these things have a huge effect on kids' ability to learn. And there's all this research now that shows that if you're exposed to, to tons of stress, like it makes you unable to
1: learn. Yes. And yeah. and that, I know and, this and, well. Just I'm sorry to cut you off, but just really really quick. My grandmother grew up in oh was in England and she was an a early childhood special ed teacher. And the only, and the, the thing that she imparted to my mother, my mother's now imparted to me, is you know, she would work with these these really poor inner city kids with severe autism. Like they just couldn't work and they they would not be able to learn anything if they came in cold and they couldn't read the board because they the chalkboard because they didn't have glasses. They didn't have food in their stomachs so they were hungry instead of paying attention. Like all these and then you finally teach them like times tables. You can't do that. You need, you know, you need to benefit the child to put them in a, in a, a prosperous uh, educational environment. And a lot of that comes from the, as you said, from the education, the economics. Sorry to cut you off. I just get really excited about this.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's clear. I mean, you're passionate about it and your family has direct experience with it. Uh, And so, you know, like right now, if you talk to philanthropy, they're just like, we got to fix education, We got to fix education. We spend a ton on education, um, but we're going to continue to be disappointed if we trust in our schools uh, and our teachers to, to somehow solve a hundred percent of a problem when they they can only account for 20 to 30 percent of the performance you know right. <laughs> it's like like the most effective thing we could do in most all of these cases is put a thousand dollars into the hands of the parents um which would decrease their stress levels in the home decrease domestic violence like uh improve kids ability to to to, to learn and um ha- have some more time with uh, their families yeah and studies have shown this. Like, they, they had a study um, on, on these kids that started getting money um, in North Carolina. Um, and the, the children's personalities actually uh, improved to become more conscientious and agreeable Like, as their families got more money because their home environment became more structured and orderly, Like, where if you behaved well, it actually paid off. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of kids are in environments where, like, you behave well, doesn't matter. You behave poorly, doesn't matter. So, like, you know, you just start behaving poorly.
1: Mm-hmm. You give them an incentive. And it's funny you mentioned North Carolina because, again, I'm sorry to jump in with all these personal experiences. But my mom, the one who was taught about special ed from my grandmother, who is now over here, she teaches community college in rural North Carolina. And so she has to work with kids, like, you know, people my age who are trying to make ends meet, but they're literally so poor that, you know, they come out and they she's literally told me stories where, you know, they've been, you know, at the vending they go to a vending machine for lunch because there's no they the, the community college can't afford a cafeteria and they pull out their quarters and count their quarters to see whether or not they can afford, afford a granola bar for lunch. And often the times they can. And so you have these cases where you know, if you have those those young students being able to incentivize, being motivated to say, hey, you know, there's an opportunity for you to just put those ends together and now you can go in the next step. Imagine how many more doctors we would have. Imagine how many more scientists and engineers, how many school teachers, how many law enforcement who are well trained, you know, how many more prosperous members of society would we have if we just started intervening at that level?
2: Yes, I mean, that that's a profound set of experiences. I couldn't agree more. I mean, what you said before about being 23 and being young, uh, like we have stacked the deck against you in a ridiculous and immoral fashion. Uh, you know, someone like you, uh, the average college graduate, if you're lucky enough to graduate from college, the average college graduate now has 37,000 in debt and 44% of recent college grads are doing jobs that don't require a college degree. Like we have we have set young people up with this immoral uh, school debt structure that really, it doesn't pay off for the student. It just pays off for these institutions. Um, and unfortunately, the army of administrators that now these institutions employ. <laughs> it's, right. it's, really, yeah. it's really messed up. Um, and your, your mother's experienced it at that community college, um, your, your grandmother, you know, you and your generation. Mm. I see the same things. I mean, this is just what the numbers show. You, know, you look at the numbers and you say, hey, school loans are up to 1.5 trillion. Like there were less than a hundred billion, and like uh, you know, like 25 years ago, like how the heck did that happen? <laughs> you know, <laughs>
1: it's, financially, like, incentive. there was a, there was a financial incentive to just and and the loophole to just pour on college debt, and people were and there was just like this motivation of like oh everyone go to college. And then go get a job. Well, that's great because that works in the 50s and 60s. You got, a, you got a four-year degree and then you'd be able to do, you know, not whatever, but you'd have a very stable career laid out for you. And now that market is saturated. It's just simple supply and demand. You have too many college graduates for jobs that don't require college degrees and you pay them too much money and then you don't have the money to give them back. And, you know, it's just, it's a big mess. So you, you it's, mentioned- It's, it's an
2: it's an enormous mess and we need to rebalance the economy fundamentally in ways that work for young people, that work for human beings generally. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I'm running for president now is that I'm convinced that most politicians are stuck in the past, to your point. And it's very natural to be stuck in the past if, you know, like like, like those are your experiences. Um, <laughs> but yeah. but we, we need to get with the times. I mean, it's freaking 2019. You know, it's like <laughs> – and, and unfortunately, we have built up decades and decades worth of um, like sort of uh, legacy – Uh, institutional debt, if you will. Like, we have not been solving these problems for decades, uh, and now we need to go much, much bigger to try and maintain uh, what we have even in the face of unprecedented uh, economic and technological changes.
1: Um, You you mentioned you you have all this data, all these facts, all this evidence that you you come forward, and you know it back to front very clearly, because you know your talking points. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, In order to get all this information, you definitely need scientists and engineers and and mathematicians and people who are on your side who are helping you out to gather and collect and and curate this data. Could you talk a little bit more about who is on your campaign team, who's helping you out, and how you're able to kind of juggle all these facts to have an evidence-based policy platform?
2: Well, certainly the data around universal-based income, um, I tried to find every study I could. And so there have been a bunch of social scientists who've done research on this. and education-related issues and social issues. Um, my team, my campaign team, I'm very, very proud to say that a um, 100 technologists have now endorsed me um, and are supporting my campaign as the person who is uh, telling the truth and just putting the facts out there. And uh, they're what I call the moral technologists, where if you talk to someone who works at technology and say, hey, uh, we're automating away the jobs, and we need to evolve, they say, yeah, that's right. Like I've been working on that for years, decades sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's like, like I see that my work is going to automate away many, many jobs uh, and that our society is not helping people adapt um, meaningfully. Uh, and so that's one huge interest group that I'm very proud to say um, support me now, uh, including Sam Altman, the head of Y Combinator, uh, John Battelle, who among other things founded Wired Magazine, uh, Fabrice Grinda, who's the number one angel investor in the world, according to Forbes. Kevin Lin, who co-founded Twitch. So uh, a bunch of like very, very smart senior techies. Albert Wenger uh, of Union Square Ventures, people who invest in the future are saying that Andrew is uh, spot on with diagnosing like the major, major issues uh, and the problems that are coming our way with artificial intelligence and the rest of it. So that's one big interest group that I rely upon for data and smart policy is the techies who are shaping the future.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, what about and within your within your campaign staff, though? Like, I'm, I'm sure that running for president, you have a lot of people helping you out. So, who do you have like behind the scenes? I'm not telling you to name names of your campaign staff, but who do you have uh, helping you out? Who's able to present all this data and make sure that it, you're up to date and make sure that you're well informed all, at all times? I'm sure you have a, a staff to help you out with that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, my a uh, right-hand man on policy matters is a guy named Matt Shinners, who uh, graduated from Harvard Law and is just hyper, hyper logical and clear thinking.
0: Uh, and
2: he and he and I see eye to eye on, like, 98% of things. So he just presents, like, data, like, very cleanly and, like, different policy analyses and what the trade-offs are. And then, um, you know, after uh, I go through it, then it's pretty straightforward a lot of the time um, to try and uh, really just go where the facts lead you. Um, you know, so... Uh, as as one example of that, uh, you know, we we were talking about um, ways to combat gun violence, and then like a friend of mine in Canada um, said that uh, one r- really effective solution is to teach mindfulness and meditation in school. Is it like helps kids manage their emotions better and reduces violence and gun violence,
0: mm-hmm. according
2: to the data? And so Matt and I looked at it, and we're just like, well. That actually makes more sense to me than I mean, the data is there, uh, number one, but it also makes sense as a more practical solution than many of the other things you can suggest. I mean, there's like the incredibly asinine, like armed teachers, which like, thank God there is no data on that. But I'm pretty sure the data would show that we'd be much more likely to have um, more people uh, getting shot accidentally than that you actually, like, fight off a shooter. <laughs> you
1: know what, it, mean? It, what bothers me about that is that, you know, we talk about, we go back to Universal Blake's income and, and the economic reform behind education is that, you know, teachers are increasingly, especially elementary and middle school teachers, are increasingly told to, they have to provide their own resources and they have to push all this money. Like, there, there's always this resistance again. Oh, we we can't quite fund that. And then as soon as the suggestion to arm teachers with guns, like, yeah, free guns for teachers, billions of dollars. for And like, where did this, could you not use this money for like school books or pencils or calculators or something else like that? I just think it's a very hypocritical argument. But anyway, continue.
2: No, no. Well, we need to go the other direction in a big way. So here, here's like the, the grand narrative where we are falling prey to a mindset of scarcity throughout our society. And this is an argument that conservatives have won, to your point. Which is like there's no there's not enough to go around there's not enough to money, like can't pay for anything.
1: It's a zero sum. And, and
2: and then when they get in control, they're like they pull that lever and they're like here's a 1.5 trillion dollar tax cut for big companies, you know here's four trillion dollars for the banks. And what I, I what I say to people is look I've been the CEO uh, and founder of a number of businesses and companies, and good companies invest in their people. We hear it all the time. We say like if we invest in our people, people will get stronger, more productive our company will perform better, it'll, it'll hew to our bottom line, uh, and we'll win. And then in the public sector, we have the opposite mentality. We say everyone's a cost. I just have to avoid spending money on that kid, avoid spending money on that old person, and then if we can get away with it, then that'll be great. And I was with a prison guard in New Hampshire the other month, and he said to me, and this is a prison guard, he said to me that we should be paying people to stay out of jail because there is so much waste and inefficiency in the prison system. And he's right. Where, like, if you you go around trying to, like, you know, it's like not, you know, avoid spending any money on everyone, we end up spending the money anyway, but in much more expensive and dark and destructive fashion, when they wind up in our prisons and emergency rooms and shelters and rehab, and we all end up paying the price anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. if, if we put that money to work, There was one study that showed that if you were to alleviate gross child poverty in the U.S., you would improve GDP, you would increase it by $700 billion because of better educational outcomes, better health outcomes, better mental health, better worker productivity. Mm -hmm. We have to treat ourselves like the owners and shareholders of this country and then say we are our own best investment. And Mm -hmm. if we invest in ourselves, we will win. And the other aspect of this is we need to start measuring our economy around things other than GDP because GDP is this terrible measurement we came up with almost 100 years ago during the Great Depression. And even the inventor of GDP said this is a terrible measurement for national well-being and we shouldn't use it as that. So we need to grow up and say, look, it's 2019. Instead of relying upon this Depression-era measurement, we should be integrating things like Mental health and freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, average income, environmental sustainability, uh, proportion of elderly, elderly that can afford to retire, like things that would actually tell us how we're doing, um, rather than follow this GDP number off a cliff, because this GDP number will go up and up when the trucks drive themselves and AI is doing the work of you know millions of clerical workers. Um, But I have a feeling that most of those workers are not going to be celebrating the record high GDP. And anyone who wants to help me fix the systems and solve these problems, please do come keep up with the campaign. You can just Google my name, Andrew Yang, or go to my website, my campaign website, yang2020.com. Again, we've already raised almost a million dollars from tens of thousands of donors around the country. Our average donation is only $11, so I joke that my fans are even cheaper than Bernie's fans were. <laughs> but That's- we need your help. We need to activate the tribe of reason to save this country of ours. Because if we do not take this opportunity, we are screwed. I mean, you know, I, what I say to people in Iowa is like, look, you go another four years and the robot truck starts showing up <laughs> and your main street store start shutting down and I, I replaces the call center workers. Like, you know, this place is going to be even harder pressed to solve these problems. like We need to seize this opportunity right now. To those who
3: would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment.
2: This is our time. To those
3: who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. Yes, and to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our... It's a very mean very and mean nasty, place. nasty place, and I don't care I don't how tough care you are, it, it will beat you to your, your knees, knees and keep you there permanently, permanently, permanently. you, you're nobody is gonna hit as hard as life. Ask not what your country
1: tell you things are bad, everybody knows things are bad. It's, a it's, a it's a
3: depression, in this lifetime you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself, it ain't about
0: it ain't how hard you can, it's, it's about how hard you can, and it, it, it. keep it's moving, moving keep forward. forward, how much you can much take, and keep it. moving forward. Keep forward. forward, that's how winning is done, welcome,
2: welcome to Public, public Access America, America.
3: America. Yes, we can. yes we
0: can,
2: now on Instagram, and SoundCloud, you wanted
3: to run out of that tunnel,
2: Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Apple, the Stitcher, Smart Radio,
3: Potable,
2: and more. Yes we, can.
3: yes, we can.
2: Public Access America: History in the Making, Making History in the Making.